The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And what the military will do, if told, is to rethink its force posture, not just to reduce emissions at installations and, I mean, by switching fuels, but to ask ourselves, do we need those bases at all? Do we need those forward located forces at all? And if we don't, for instance, in the Persian Gulf, can we close them? What is the risk? If we do, is it low or is the, the certainty of climate change low? Well, the certainty of climate change is high and the risk in many of these war zones of war is low. And we have the capacity, given the United States' ability to project power with its existing forces to get to a war zone relatively rapidly. It's not that we have to be everywhere all the time. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 29th, 2022. The United States military was one of the first institutions in government to acknowledge the threat posed by climate change, as well as the science behind it. And yet it remains the largest single energy consumer in the country, and the largest institutional greenhouse gas emitter in the world. To talk through this strategic disconnect, I sat down with Dr. Nita Crawford, Montague Burton Professor of International Relations at the University of Oxford, co-director of the Costs of War study at Brown University, and author of the new book, The Pentagon, Climate Change, and War, Charting the Rise and Fall of U.S. Military Missions. We discussed what Dr. Crawford calls the irony and tragedy of the military's carbon emissions, how war drives emissions and industrialization, and why climate activists may be skeptical about framing climate as a security issue. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 29th. Nita Crawford on the Pentagon, Climate Change, and War. Now, I want to start with giving the listeners a sense of the scale of military missions that we're talking about here. Uh, I think one of the most valuable aspects of your book and your work in general is just the output of, of data and the, the essential service of data collection. I think someone mentioned that it rivals uh, more of an NGO or a think tank than any one person. But what is the scale of military missions we're talking about here? In the current moment, the last two years, the U.S. military has emitted 51 million metric tons, which is more than the emissions of most countries in the world. It's on par with the emissions of, let's say, Sweden or Portugal. But prior to that, U.S. military emissions were much larger, and they peaked in 1970 
six or so at around 109 million metric tons, so more than twice what they are now. Nevertheless, even though U.S. military emissions have declined for a number of reasons, which we can talk about, they're still large. And yes, I definitely want to get into some of the reasons behind the decline and you know, the rate of decline, if it's on par with, with some of the climate goals that the U.S. has set. But uh, first, I want to kind of understand better you know, how the military is emitting or why they're emitting. You would distinguish in your book different scopes, uh, scopes one, two, and three of emissions in, in terms of calculating total U.S. military emissions. Can you, can you describe how uh, the U.S. military is emitting greenhouse gases? Scope one, scope two, and three are the way that the international community talks about emissions. And that is what a entity does to emit greenhouse gases directly from uh, their activities. Then that's scope one. And scope two is what emissions are associated with the electricity or power that you buy from another entity that goes directly to your operations. And scope three one can think of a supply chain, or in the case of a military, the consequences of what it does out in the world. And what I'm doing is looking at scope one and scope two emissions. Those are tracked currently by the Department of Energy, and you can see reports of those emissions on a DOE website. What I also did was went back historically so we could understand the trends. So then how is it that uh, military is producing so much greenhouse gas? Well, the first thing is its operations, which include not only war, but training and exercises. And the second way is through its installations, its fixed bases, and there the activities of individuals and the use of power to supply heat and light to those installations. Those are the the two main ways. Now, what we haven't calculated, I haven't been able to, is the emissions that are caused by things like the destruction of an adversary's oil wells, as the U.S. did in its war against ISIS, or um, the emissions that come from the destruction of a city. So you you burn a city, you, you turn it into rubble, and then emissions associated with both the destruction and then later the reconstruction. I haven't calculated those, nor have I calculated biogenic emissions from biological sources. So basically what I have here is a a partial picture of the emissions from the main activities that you think of with a military that's not at war and at war, but I'm not looking at the emissions that come from the war. And before we move on from from the data and from the scale of emissions, I want to ask you, you know, how you were able to create this partial picture. Um, The sense I got from your book is that the Department of Defense hasn't always been the most forthcoming with its climate change data, with its um, emissions data. How are you able to estimate, especially these historic trends? Well, the The main thing I did was I looked at the fuel use and energy produced from the Department of Energy data from 1975 to the present. And I then used that information to calculate the carbon dioxide equivalent, CO2E, of those energy sources. 
And so that involved just uh, getting a spreadsheet and doing the math. It wasn't super hard. The difficulty is that, as I say, that's only a partial story. And the reason that we don't know, sort of like the Department of Defense doesn't publish its emissions uh, until recently, and that those emissions are generally not included in most countries' reports to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's emissions are, are not included because the United States military resisted in 1997 the inclusion of military emissions in the Kyoto Protocol negotiations and the framework for reporting. Now, why did they resist including those emissions? It's because they were concerned that if military emissions were reported, that would lead inevitably to a call for reducing those emissions. They're enormous, right? So they're ripe for reduction. And they argued in 1997 in a paper that they gave the White House that to reduce emissions by even 10% would result in a diminution of military capacity. And that capacity being in any way constrained would lead to a loss of American preeminence and its ability to make war where it wanted, when it wanted. So most of the emissions are not required to be reported. And the reporting of military emissions from aircraft is included, if a government so chooses, in its commercial aircraft emissions. So we don't know from that reporting what the emissions are. That's why I had to go to the raw data. Now that we have a sense of the scale of U.S. military emissions, I want to better understand how we got here. How did the U.S. military come to be the single largest institutional emitter of greenhouse gases or or whatever superlative you want to choose? Okay, well, there's two things. One is the United States is a great power. It has, you know, by far the world's largest military spending, and it has had this high level of spending um, since the Cold War, during the Cold War, after the Cold War. It is preeminent in terms of its military capacity. The way we got there was by moving away in the 19th century from people's arms and legs and draft horses and the power from sail to mechanizing, industrializing locomotion in war, you harnessing the steam engine, and also by industrializing, again, through steam power by coal or then later oil, military industry. So what happened is as these weapons became powered by fuel, fossil fuels, they created their own need for refueling. So if you didn't have enough coal, you had to get more at some port. And so then that meant that the United States had to have more bases. Now the bases themselves require energy and their disposition globally over the world means you have to transit that fuel all over the world. So what you have is a cycle where you uh, industrialize the warfighting capacity, then you have to have fuel to make sure those weapons, those tanks, those ships, those aircraft can remain mobile. 
then you need bases to protect access to the local fuel or to provide a location for you to store fuel. And then uh, you need alliances with the, the locations where you have these bases. And so the system gets larger in order to make sure that the United States military can do what it wants to do and what the president says it should be doing. In your book, you you make the point that the the dominant narrative of climate change often doesn't include or doesn't pay enough attention to this cycle of and the role of militarization and war in, in climate change. Why do you think that this dynamic has been previously underappreciated? Quite simply because the dominant story that we tell about climate change often begins with the industrial revolution. There are other ways to talk about it, but usually people say, okay, when we got the steam engine and that required using lots of coal and that coal was put into industry, that's industrial, that industrialization process is what explains the rise of emissions from the you know late 1700s to early 1800s to the present. That is true. But what drove a lot of that industrialization has been war. It's been war all along. And in fact, we tell the story about the transition to plastic replacing glass and wood or nitrous fertilizers replacing manure as if the wars didn't have anything to do with it. But the big impetus for switching these um, materials has been war, World War I and World War II. So uh, you get the move away from nitrous-based explosives to nitrous, nitrogen-based fertilizers in the post-World War I and post-World War II eras because you didn't need that any longer to make explosives. But now we're dependent on nitrogen-based fertilizers. Of course, that becomes nitrous oxide, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. And then, of course, the, the desire to use not natural materials, uh, but plastics, it has uh, reverberated through entire economies. And that's petroleum ultimately, right? And it takes energy to manufacture those things. And that's a further boost to an entire economy's emissions. So again, the story, if it just focuses on uh, industrialization, it misses the role of military industrialization. And it misses the role of war in spurring overall industrialization and changing the profile of economies. And how does the military and its leadership think about climate change? And I guess as, as a bit of a leading question, when did, when did the U.S. military start taking climate change seriously? Well, the United States began to understand the scale of climate change like the rest of us did, but they paid for the research. In other words, in the 1950s, when the United States was trying to understand the atmospheric effects of nuclear war. The scientist Roger Revelle was sent to the Pacific and he was understanding the atmospheric effects of nuclear explosions. Yes, but he was also, like others, noting increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And they suggested, these scientists, including Roger Revelle, that what we needed to do was learn more about the 
possible consequences of this huge increase in carbon in the atmosphere. And they argued based on previous scientific research that it would lead to warming. And then Ravel went to Congress in 1956 as part of the effort to get the International Geophysical Year to understand climate change effects. He argued that the Arctic Ocean, if warming continued, would become navigable. And then the Russian coastline would be free for shipping, which would also make Russia, he said, uh, a great maritime nation. Now, he's arguing that the Cold War competition requires us to pay attention to this warming. So at this moment, and for subsequent years, much of what the Office of Naval Research did was fund research on uh, basic science, including climate change. And the early papers on climate change were many of them funded by the DOD or specifically the Office of Naval Research. So these first papers in the 1950s that quantify the data that tells us the large increase in carbon dioxide comes from institutions that are funded by the DOD. The early papers acknowledge the Office of Naval Research and the Navy is really on top of this. They understand climate change. These same scientists in the 1960s brief President Johnson. They, again, some of the same scientists brief Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. And um, they're using data that they've acquired through the resources that um, the military was supplying so that they could understand the military implications of a changing climate. In the 1990s, there were also people who were talking specifically again about, you know, the the implications for the Navy of rising sea levels and changing levels of salinity as Arctic ice melted and how this might affect anti-submarine warfare. So they're interested in it all along from a sort of large geopolitical perspective, but also from a technical perspective. How would it affect their operations in a day-to-day way? And then, as I said, in the 1990s, they are resisting the reporting of military emissions because they didn't want to be constrained. But as we see, you know, from what I have said, they've all along understood that climate change was occurring, that its cause was anthropogenic emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, and that it would have effects which could and would have security implications. And so then the U.S. military, uh, working you know, alongside people outside the military, began to articulate some of the consequences for installations and also for operations. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I think then a, a natural next question gets at maybe one of the central questions or tensions of your book which is how can we explain an institution that understands the problem of climate change so well and was so forward thinking in continuing to contribute uh, or exacerbate it? In other words, I think something you call the irony and the tragedy of U.S. military missions. How do we explain that strategic disconnect? I think there are two ways. First, the, the military does a job that it's asked to do, which is to be prepared to fight and win wars. And they're focused on that. That's their first job. Their first job isn't overall responsibility for the environment. And they're focused on their mission. Now, they have had mission-oriented reasons to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And that has occurred over time. Uh, The second reason is that they have not wanted to appear to be engaged in the political fights that began in the 2000s. Remember, climate change was not a partisan issue for many decades. Democrats and Republicans were concerned. When it became a partisan issue, the military essentially didn't want to be part of that conversation. They wanted to just keep doing their job. So they uh, have always framed their interest in and behavior around climate change as reducing fuel use to decrease their vulnerability. And the kinds of vulnerabilities that they're interested in reducing include the vulnerability where if you drive a tank or have bases and people in forward locations, every time you try to send that group or individual fuel, you're putting at risk the people who deliver the fuel. And they wanted to have increased efficiency so that they would put fewer people at risk to deliver the fuel in war zones. So they've always seen their efforts as about um, reducing risk to their own soldiers. And it's in that sort of narrower frame. And it's also that narrower frame of we have to win a war. Now, that is a a frame that does not take into account the role of um, their emissions in making the world less secure. It's just focused on the task at hand. Now, I want to get into some of these efforts, because as you mentioned earlier, the DOD has reduced emissions. So my first question is, you know, by how much? Um, and, and can we consider these as as ambitious or unambitious reductions and then what are the, some of the ways in which the military is, quote unquote, greening itself? Well, U.S. military emissions come really in two sides. One is operational emissions from war, and the other is from installations. And the installation energy use is directly related to the number of bases and their power supply, right? So installation energy use is currently about 30% of all military energy use. And what happened in the 1990s was that with the end of the Cold War, 
the United States went from around 2,000 overseas bases to about 1,000 over, overseas bases as they were closed in the base realignment and closure process. So the number of bases decreased. And secondly, the military diversified its power sources, you know, moving away from a large number of coal-fired plants, just as the rest of the economy did, decreasing coal consumption to emphasizing natural gas and electricity sources that were not derived from dirty fossil fuels. So they also decreased um, fuel oil consumption. So they're, they're getting... Uh, they moved to cleaner energy sources. That's why installation energy use declined. You know, those two, two factors, closing bases and changing the source of electricity and heat. Now, in terms of operational energy use, that varies directly. That's 70% of the whole thing, but it varies directly with the activities of the military. So what you see is a, a peak, a, a large number at the end of the Vietnam War, 109 million metric tons in fiscal year 1975, a decline as the United States wound down from the Vietnam War, but it increased during Reagan's military buildup in the 1980s, declined at the end of the Cold War, but then went up for a year in the, the 1991 Gulf War. And then at the end of the Cold War, as I said, all of uh, this activity with decreased. When you have fewer overseas bases, you have fewer exercises with partner countries, including in NATO, and um, you're flying less in general, and aircraft are the largest uh, emitters. And when the United States went to war post 9-11, those emissions went up. So emissions are directly correlated to operations. And then uh, as the uh, post 9-11 wars waxed and waned now uh, mostly over, the emissions have gone down to 51 million metric tons. And uh, there is room here, I believe, for greater reductions in the number of bases and exercises. And what we have here is uh, an opportunity to rethink the entire U.S. military posture at, with the end of the post-9-11 wars. And that doesn't mean just switching everybody over from the Persian Gulf or a central command to uh, Indo-Pacific command. It means reducing the number of bases overall, because even the Pentagon admits that they have overcapacity of between 15 and 20 percent of bases. And it means uh, reducing exercises where that's possible and uh, trying to decrease tensions because increasing tensions means the other side is also building weapons and maybe even building bases and exercising in anticipation of confronting the United States. Now, as, as you know, and I'm sure many of our listeners know, um, the Biden administration released its national security strategy, which really centered climate change as, as an existential security threat. So given this this framing, what do you think the likelihood is of accomplishing some of those solutions that that you put forward toward the end of your book and in the way ahead? And what obstacles still remain? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so not only did the national security 
strategy forefront climate change. The Biden administration has consistently said climate change is an existential threat. You know, in their order of December 2021, they said, you know, the entire government has to reduce its emissions and go for dramatic reductions by 2050. What it also did, that order, was to say that there could be a national security exemption. So national security agencies, including the DOD, could ask for exemptions. Around the same time, a little and a little after, the DOD and each of the services put out plans for emissions reductions. You know, for example, the Navy said that they would reduce their department-wide emissions by 65% by 2030 from a 2008 baseline. And that it would include a 50% reduction in emissions from buildings. And they want to be net zero by 2050. So that's a lot of numbers. But what I'm going to tell you is that because they did not include the 2008 number and their current number, we don't know how close they were to that goal already. I think they are already pretty close to that reduction because emissions have been declining. Okay, so so I, I don't think that was an ambitious goal for the Navy. The Army said that they would reduce emissions by 50% by 2030 from a 2005 baseline. Again, they didn't give us the baseline emissions number for 2005, fiscal year 2005. So we don't know how close they are. But I think they've actually cut them quite a bit with just simply the reduction in operations overseas with the end of the post-9-11 wars. Remember, 2005 is one of the peaks of activity. The same with the Air Force. They say that they want a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030 from a 2008 baseline. Again, they didn't give us that baseline number, but I know that uh, from looking at calculating their emissions, they were, they've done quite a bit to reduce their emissions. So it is not an ambitious goal. So there's room here. Um, what the Biden administration has to have the courage to do and what the military will do if told is to rethink its force posture, not just to reduce emissions at installations and I mean, by switching fuels, but to ask ourselves, do we need those bases at all? Do we need those forward located forces at all? And if we don't, for instance, in the Persian Gulf, can we close them? What is the risk if we do? Is it low or is the, the certainty of climate change low? Well, the certainty of climate change is high and the risk in many of these war zones of war is low. And we have the capacity, given the United States' ability to project power with its existing forces to get to a war zone relatively rapidly. It's not that we have to be everywhere all the time prepared at, a, at the drop of a hat to wage war because in most places, in most cases, the risk of war is low. And remember, it's 100% certain that we're, we're, we've moved into climate change and that the effects directly scale and in some cases are exponential with the emissions that we put out there. Every ton 
of CO2, methane, nitrous oxide, and fluorinated gases matters. I'm curious if you think there are any pitfalls in framing climate change as a, as a security threat and essentially securitizing it, looking to the military for solutions, or is the military actually fairly well positioned to be a leader in developing climate change technologies? Well, there's really two questions you asked there. Um, one is about the technology, and I'll take that first, and then one is about securitizing. In some cases, you need a lot of resources to develop a new technology. For instance, you know, scaling up really efficient batteries. And the military itself, because it requires so much energy, can if it's switched to, let's say, uh, everything is powered by solar panels or wind, that could actually, uh, as I've said, happened in the past, really change the commercial industrial sector as it moves to meet the demand of uh, the DOD. I think um, that's all well and good, and that might be important, but what's more important is to use those resources more efficiently in the civilian sector. You know, research and development for something that's meant to meet the requirements of the military is often much more expensive than research and development for something that's meant to meet civilian requirements. So I think we have to be efficient with the R&D dollars. I think that um, this sort of idea that the military should lead is misplaced in the sense that what we need to be doing is, is letting the military buy off-the-shelf components for its needs, like they often do already. And uh, then, you know, putting resources that is money and mines at civilian transition. Secondly, you asked about securitizing. There's two parts to securitizing. One is it's, you know, the securitization of anything is to say that it's not just a human threat or a human problem, it's a national security problem. And in a sense, climate change is an existential threat, but it doesn't mean that climate change caused war is coming to a neighborhood near you. And some of the analysis in the most recent documents has said that climate change is not simply a, a problem of too much heat and too much water or too little water, but it's uh, a problem that will lead to migration, which means that people are going to come to our borders and then they'll wreak havoc or that uh, there'll be unrest in Central Africa in the most vulnerable places. And um, this will cause conflict. Well, the problem is that the research doesn't show that climate change in and of itself will cause conflict. There are many intervening variables, including state capacity. So rather than bolstering military forces to deal with a possible climate change caused war coming to you, I think it's better to bolster this, the capacity of those countries to A, make a transition to clean energy, B, to be able to react to and adapt to climate change, and three, deal with any problems that come up, such as um, famine or flooding. And this is a sort of longer term capacity building project in governments. Now, 
So the response of securitizing, I think, actually puts resources in the wrong place. That's what I'm trying to suggest. Well, Dr. Crawford, thank you so much for taking the time. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.